Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. First up this week, Rafa Esparza, one of two artists in the Hammer Museum's Made in LA Biennial that will be featuring over the next few weeks. The exhibition, which was curated by Ara Moschietti and Hamza Walker, is on view through August 28th. Rafa Esparza's work often mixes sculpture, site-specific installation, and performance to address issues around queer and Chicano histories as well as his own family experiences. Esparza's work often, but not always, uses traditional and handmade adobe bricks as both a starting point and as a reference. His work has been shown at LA Contemporary Exhibitions, better known as LACE, at the Bowtie Project in cooperation with Clock Shop, and at Getty Center. Manpodcast.com will have several videos of and related to his work and performances, so be sure and have a look. On the second segment, we'll revisit my 2015 conversation with William Popel. With the Democratic National Convention's final evening, concluding two weeks of American political conventions tonight, it seemed like a good time to reconsider Popel's magnificent trinket, which was installed at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles in 2015. But first up, Rafa Esparza, after the break. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. The third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Ara Moschietti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by the New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the Dazzling Exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Rafa Esparza, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The material you're using at the Hammer is the material for which you've become best known, well known, really almost quite quickly. They're Adobe bricks, and they're rooted in things like labor and family and landscape, site, minimalism, post minimalism, performance. You managed to pack a lot into Adobe bricks. So tell us how, walk us through how you came to Adobe Bricks. Did it start with thinking about and joining art and material, or 
Is it much broader than that? Ooh, let me see. Well, I guess I, I grew up I grew up going to visit my parents' hometown in Durango, Mexico, a small town, Ricardo Flores Magón, every year of my childhood up until I was a teen. And I also lived out there for, for an entire year. All of the homes are, to this day, still built out of adobe. All of their streets are still unpaved. It's largely or mostly an agricultural pueblo. And so, you know, coming, visiting there and coming back to the States was always, or actually visiting there every summer was such a a treat for me uh, because it was such a distinct experience from from living in sort of, you know, the modernity of Los Angeles, California in the U.S. And so I've always had this relationship to to adobe or, or to land in this very, maybe like brief sort of instances that may be accumulated later in life to these sort of larger questions about like my relationship to space and relationship to land. But I guess my, but so my first actual sort of engagement with like making adobe came from <laughs> this ambitious sort of desire to want to reconnect with my father and to sort of bond with him. We hadn't we hadn't been talking for a while. Uh, I had I had come out to my family. It'd been maybe a couple years, and I started bringing my partner around, and it created this really uncomfortable friction between us because having having my partner present was a sort of constant reminder of you know that that I'm queer, that I'm gay. My father and I have have always had a really really close relationship. We're we're I have. You know, I'm a a sibling of six. Out of out of all of my siblings, my father and I share this strong passion for building and and working uh, with our hands. Yeah, and so that our relationship was was fraught for for a few years. You know, my mother and I also have this very close relationship. She's she's a great storyteller and and is often sharing with me many many stories of of what she remembers of like living in in Mexico and so a lot a lot that I know about my father's upbringing I know through my mother because um, they grew up in the same town but so I knew that he made adobes as a kid and as a teen and so, and so I used that to I, I, I asked him if he would teach me how to make adobe inviting an interaction that I hoped would be healing for both of us and he agreed. He agreed to teach me, but our conversation was lacking of all the things <laughs> that I was hoping would happen. Our our conversation was limited to, you know, the task at hand, which is like, you know, what the materials were, how much of it we needed, what needed to happen, you know, it needs more water. It was very, it was very quiet, but it was also very generative for me because we were it was a it was a first step towards you know healing i think our relationship and acknowledging you know that you know uh, we're still you know i'm still his son and and i'm still like the same person that has like the same passion for making as i had before and and so i i feel like it wasn't it wasn't meeting the expectations that i the grand expectations that i had for us but it it was it was a powerful sort of interaction that we had a powerful experience 
So could you briefly, quickly tell us how you make adobe bricks and what goes into them? Sure, yeah. The recipe that, that my father taught me is the one that he, that he used to make the bricks back in Mexico, which was uh, a little bit of a challenge for me to sort, of, to sort of figure out here in the States because in Mexico, so what you use is dirt that has certain percentage of clay in it, horse dung, hay, and water. Those are the ingredients. You know, in Mexico, the, the soil that, that they use, that they live on, has already a really high content of clay in it. And so they just like dig into the earth, you know, bring in like the horse dung and the hay and the water they also have nearby. They have like a, um, a river or a lake nearby that they pull water from. Everything is sourced like from pretty immediate surroundings. But so here, the soil varies from like neighborhood to neighborhood. Yeah, but so those, those are the those are the ingredients to the the adobe that that he made and and the adobe bricks that I ended up making here as well. Which you pack into a wooden form, I gather. Right. So it's this it's this wooden form that's made out of these sort of uh, like one inch thick pieces of wood that are like four inches wide, and they're like so there's like so there's two, there's two rectangular molds that sit beside one another that you set on the ground. You dump the other way in and you pack it in neatly with your feet at first and then with your hands. And then you sprinkle water over the tops to smooth out and then just slip off the molds and the bricks, you know, remain if if you've mixed the adobe correctly, <laughs> they'll stay put. And, and they'll just, they'll dry under the sun. These are um, sun-baked, they're not fired bricks. And then they're just, they're, they're ready to use, you know, within, you know, under the heat that we've been, we had been working with the first summer that uh, my family and I made them, they were ready, they were hardened within four days. So when and how did you go from So the, 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 the bricks that I've been making recently, their dimensions are they're four inches thick, 12 inches long, and 16 inches wide. And the first, that first batch that I made with my father uh, in his backyard were maybe half that size. And we just sort of collected them and kept them in the backyard for a while. And in my performance, in my, in my artwork, what I was doing with performance was sort of questioning I had ideas of masculinity and and how how I had sort of inherited certain masculinities from family members from my father and so I was invited to go up to San Francisco and be part of this queer performance festival called This Is What I Want and what I did was I I took with me a suitcase and I took clothing from different men in my family and then I also decided to incorporate the bricks with me into this piece. Hadn't really known how up until like maybe a couple of days prior to going up to San Francisco. But so I, I packed my boyfriend's car with like all of these, like I think it was like 60 bricks. <laughs> we were low riding all the way down to San Francisco and with like a suitcase of like not my own clothes, <laughs> but my family, <laughs> my brother's clothes. And so what I ended up doing was I built this structure. It was like this sort of two-day 
kind of like a durational piece where the first day I just sort of built out of two by four pieces of, of, of wood this box that I hung uh, all of the adobe bricks densely within it. But so you could enter this box through either of its four sides and, and all of the bricks were, were visible from, from its outside. And so day one was just a sort of building of the structure. And then day two, I, I made these like makeshift mylar mirrors that I hung throughout the space where I would have these sort of like costume changes using the different clothes that I had brought with me that were interspersed by me at first, like walking through this adobe structure and then sort of running through and more aggressively like colliding with uh, as the sort of performance progressed. So it was a sort of literal sort of like deconstruction of the sort of this material that I made with my father, but also these different sort of masculinities that were fashioned by different members of my family and the way that they've sort of inherited what it, what it means to look like and be and embody a man. That was my first literal, like, uh, interact, physical interaction with, with Adobe. It was, it was a very violent one. It was a very destructive one. It was one that was, I think, you know, dealing, not unrelated to the experience of like making them with my father. I think that sort of those sort of personal stakes that I had in making making them with him were also present in the sort of the way the performance unraveled throughout the course of the two days. So a, a few years, I guess, after that comes the project, uh, the year-long project you did at a site in Los Angeles called The Bowtie. The Bowtie is an 18-acre post-industrial lot. It's a former rail yard. It's along the Los Angeles River, and in terms of L.A. neighborhoods, it's kind of between Atwater Village, Silver Lake, East L.A. It's a mile or two north of Dodger Stadium, why don't I um, stop with the geography lesson and let you be the one who describes what you made there and how you invited others to interact with that place and the structure you made there? So just prior to that that project that, that you're talking about, there was I was invited by a clock shop. A local nonprofit. A local nonprofit that does a lot of like public programming uh, in that at the bow tie. And not just art, they do all kinds of stuff, yeah. They do all kinds of stuff, yeah. It's like music, food, movie screenings, food, yeah, tons of stuff. And um, so they had invited me to to visit Michael Parker's sculpture titled The Unfinished, which is this 137-foot-long obelisk that was carved into the banks just above the L.A. River. So lying flat, it's horizontal, it's not an upstanding obelisk, it's an obelisk in the dirt, more or less. Right, right, it's entrenched in the gravel. So they had they had started to program different works on the on the obelisk itself, and so they had invited me to sort of visit it and see if I'd I'd be inspired to do something. And what well, what I was really taken taken by when I when I walked onto Michael's piece was noticing all of the different sediments underneath the gravel. I remember noticing like beach sand or something that looked like beach sand. I remember seeing seashells. I remember seeing 
broken up mortar that didn't resemble the gravel. I remember seeing, yeah, like just like all sorts of like different, different types of like earth. And it made me think, it sort of automatically made me think about like the channeling or the, the, the cementing or the, of the LA river. Cause it made me think of, we, we, I should jump in and note that for, for people who don't know, the L.A. River is now a concrete-lined trench. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, only in California. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was, I was imagining this sort of process of, of this, you know, natural body, like moving body of water and uh, being prepared to be lined by cement and concrete and so I wondered if if that soil that I was seeing was some that was pushed off from the edges of the river. And I couldn't help but sort of just think about the land and imagining what it must have looked like as a sort of natural in its in its in its natural state. And so I decided that I that I wanted to use to use land as a sort of platform. If I were to sort of perform or do something on the obelisks, it would have to be on earth rather than asphalt. And so by then, like, you know, my father and I get along great. He had already helped me with other, construct other pieces that I had worked worked on. I invited him to teach my siblings and my mother as well uh, how to make other way bricks so that we could make enough to pave the surface of the obelisk that I would then perform on or use for a performance. And so it became, I wanted to use, I wanted to use the river and use the water from the river as, as a resource, as a sort of natural resource and engage it in ways that I thought, you know, it, it could have, it may have been used. Yeah. It was once a resource, even if it doesn't really flow now. I, convinced a few of my brothers and sisters <laughs> to to participate in this project. I was also very interested in labor because so I was thinking about the obelisk and the kind of labor that that uh, it sort of brings up for me was obviously like slave labor. But I was thinking about other forms of, of, of laboring to create like monuments or monumental like work. And so I, you know, I was thinking about my family as a sort of a laboring force and thinking conversely about the sort of labor it takes to maintain these familial bonds and what those bonds look like and how they, you know, how we would sort of interact with each other within the context of like working, working with each other. And so, you know, a couple, I want to say that everyone participated uh, in different ways. Some were, you know, some of my, a couple of my brothers were more supportive in terms of like showing up bringing food and water and some were there like almost every day like my sister was there every day and she was like had the rubber boots on she was like had her hands in the mud but so those those sort of distances that everyone negotiated were also like very interesting to me and 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 but I think that the part that was most important for me was to have the opportunity to share a way of working with land and a way of like have having a relationship to land to my nephews and my niece because you know unless you know they they're able to visit like mexico or visit a place where these different relationships that that when they have in the city are present 
they won't be able to experience that. And so a big part of, of, of what we were doing was that, was to sort of find a way to, imagining a way to sort of, uh, to relate to the land in, in a different way, you know, in spite of the sort of very rigid structures that organize our daily lives in the city. So if that's the first part of what you did at the bow tie, the second part or second stage might be a better phrase is in some way is really, really different. You, you built two Adobe walls two two intersecting Adobe walls. And I'm guessing this part didn't involve your family. Right. So, so what did you do with the walls? Let's, let's go there first. So after, after that first project was done, clock shop invited me again to sort of continue to, to, to work with the bricks. Now we had all of these bricks that were scheduled to be removed from the obelisk at some point, and they were wondering if I had any ideas about how to sort of continue to work at the bow tie. And so what I did was I proposed, you know, I have, I, my history with the LA River is, is one of, it's always been a place of, of, of creation, of, of art. You know, I used to go and hang with friends and while they like, you know, graffitied or did like a mural with spray paint. And so, you know, like in the mid nineties up until like the mid two thousands, the LA, a big portions of the LA River were covered in graffiti. And in 2007, all of that was whitewashed. Fines and punishments for people that were caught, you know, graffitiing that area were raised. And and so now a lot of graffiti exists sort of outside of outside of the LA River. You know, it's sort of gone into neighborhoods and uh, all of these other sort of different places, not centralized as much as it was before. So so let me jump in really quickly because I want to try to point you in a certain direction. You did a Q&A with Clock Shop in which you talked about following taggers affiliated with the site um, on Instagram. And where that story left it was that you reached out to one of them on, on Instagram, proposed meeting him, and you arranged for him to have access to the site on the LA River at the Bowtie during the day. What was his reaction? How did that go? Did he, did he become involved? Yeah, he did. And he was actually someone that was, he's someone that frequents that, that site pretty regularly. And he had met another artist that was working on there on that same site. Like previously, Olga Cormondoros. She actually pointed me to him because she had met him and said, hey, you should look into this kid. I wish I could have like, you know, engaged him more or, you know, gotten to know him more, or done something with him. And so... She, all she had was a name, and so yeah, I went on to like social media, and I, um, and I was you know searching all of these different hashtags, and so I found him. <laughs> I found him, and I invited him to like just to meet with him and and have a, a conversation with him about like what this project was about, and so I had been thinking about the sort of history of the site and the and how various people move through it and use it. I had this idea of building. These, these two adobe walls that would be used as a painting surface for various various individuals that would be invited, but also sanctioned open space for anyone that would want to use it, which included him. But so I wanted to open up the invitation for him to like, you know, spend some time with it and, you know, have some financial support because those that would be invited would have like a 
they'd, they'd get materials, there was a small artist stipend, and then they'd get like documentation of their work. But so that first meeting with him was interesting because he, you know, he's a, he does graffiti. He, he, and he doesn't see, he had a very sort of finite way of thinking about when he would be a graffiti artist. You know, he, he definitely associated it with uh, his youth and he didn't see himself doing this for the rest of his life, but he did want to leave a mark. And, and the mark that, that he wanted to make was one of like, you know, spaces that, that were the most sort of like challenging to get to. Things actually that, that this project didn't necessarily embody, right? This project was very much of like inviting, inviting and helping support artists that are, are questioning or, or wanting to take their, their work outside of like traditional context but also artists that are already working out in, in public and making murals and doing graffiti. And so he, you know, he, he liked the idea of having a space that he could practice on uh, and not be bothered or not sort of be restricted by the time of doing something, you know, illegally or having to sort of like drop everything and run at some point. And so he was open to, I think he was intrigued by at the opportunity of having a space to sort of to experience experiment with and he agreed and he became one of one of the featured artists that was part of part of this year-long project you know that's a good example of a really specific way of bringing together a uh, a community that had been for you know over a decade intentionally marginalized by the state taggers into an existing power structure. So not only do you have the kind of non-profit thing going on, clock shop and such, but the bow tie itself, the site, is owned by the state of California's park system. And it seems to me your work has kind of taken, you know, we, we started by talking about about the Adobe and, and your family, and it seems to me that in the last couple of years, your work has taken a turn toward bringing marginalized communities into power structures and I wonder if you think of it that way yes and no I mean I feel like part of I think bringing I think bringing that material and that and that work into museums inherently maybe do that but there's also uh, a great investment that I have in in terms of imagining different different platforms different spaces that could hold ideas that I feel are more that are pointing to a different history than art history that are pointing to maybe a more sort of local geography and a more sort of like local history or or really in this case national history exactly right and in the different in the different adobe constructions or configurations you know I was I that first one I felt like was was one that I was where I was imagining a canvas, you know, imagining a surface uh, that could hold images, and in and being invited to to work with different institutions or different art spaces, traditional art spaces, you know, those invitations are always I always consider them heavily and incorporate them into the work because you know these spaces are not neutral spaces they have you know they're uh, very prominent are uh, you know 
the histories of those spaces that are sometimes in direct like conflict with you know the the histories that I that I'm thinking about and so you know when I uh, the next time that I worked with Adobe was um, when I had this summer residency at LACE, Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions, which is one of the first sort of spaces that I've experienced like performance art in. That was, again, outside, different from my initial experience of performance art, which was like out in the streets. And thinking about, thinking about LACE and my own relationship to LACE, it was also one of the first gallery spaces that I performed in. I wanted to inhabit inhabit it in a different way and and push away push away the history and the space that I am that I'm not as invested in as I am with working with this material and working with land and instead building a space that was that could sort of contain uh, my body and, and these ideas closer to me so what I did is I uh, went back to the bow tie. They hosted me and they've, they've continued to sort of like host and support these different Adobe projects to continue to work with the LA River. And I made, we made together approximately like 4,000 Adobe bricks that we used to uh, build uh, like a, an oval rotunda within that took up the span of the entire gallery. So it was about 70 feet long and about 25 feet wide that held a variety of different sort of like events. There was a, a conversation that was hosted by Michelada Think Tank, uh, who had a residency in at LACE as well during the same time that I did. And they hosted, they were putting together a people of color survival guide to the art world. And they had uh, hosted a conversation, a community conversation in the space that I built while it was still under construction. And so my my work there was the actual building. We were making bricks, transporting them, and building on site throughout the duration of my residency. The full structure wasn't completed the way that I had initially sort of designed it. And it was only up for maybe four days before we started breaking it down again and removing it from the gallery space. So it was a sort of constant shifting, constantly being built up space where things happened while this entire process was sort of ongoing. There was also this volume, which is um, a sound, Soundworks uh, program co-founded by Robert Crouch. Jan Novak is also part of it. Geneva Skeen and some other folks programmed a three-day like sound festival that took place in the, in the Adobe space. And then I curated an evening of performance the day before it, it came down. Uh, where I invited different artists that were considering, that consider within their own work, you know, questions of identity. Yeah, to sort of to to sort of think about this space that was inherently brown, that you know mirrored, you know, mirrored some aspect of their identity back to them, and to see what you know, what kind of work could potentially happen in a space like that. My guest is Rafa Esparza. We'll be right back after a break. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. 
Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. Blaffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronet, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronet has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Get up close and personal with Sculpture from Antiquity and the Getty's newest digital publication, Ancient Terracotta from South Italy and Sicily. In the ancient world, terracotta was a readily available and economical alternative to stone. Explore the Getty Museum's collection of terracotta in vivid detail. Zoom in, give it a 360-degree spin, and learn the backstories of these stunning ancient masterworks. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Rafa Esparza. Let's move forward to, to the piece you've done at The Hammer. It's a piece called Tierra. It's Adobe Bricks on the, kind, on the second level of the museum, if you will, the indoor-outdoor second level. And, and, and there, there, there's an installation of Adobe Bricks on, on the floor of that level. And you also invited a group of participants to unearth objects that you had previously buried throughout Elysian Park, which is the city park just a few feet away from Dodger Stadium, just north of Dodger Stadium, in advance of installing them at the museum. That's a radical shorthand of the entire thing, but we'll have links and images to more on, <laughs> on manpodcast.com. I, I wasn't there on, at the hammer on days you were installing, but I noticed that when a Southern California public radio station, KPCC, photographed you installing the piece at the hammer, you were wearing an L.A. Dodgers hat. <laughs> uh, you know where this is going. So, so, so much of your work is about history and community and contested geography. And here you are making work using a traditional building material. The project involves Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium is. It has a notorious history related to the city and the federal government over a period of decades effectively teaming up to forcibly move long-standing Mexican-American citizens, you know, of five, six decades who had lived there out of their community. And then the city removed cliffs and filled in the ravine so that the baseball stadium that is there now could be built. So that's a long way of asking, is wearing an L.A. Dodgers hat while making and installing the work a, a, a pointed, if not near performative um, act? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 since that, that that hat has been destroyed, actually, in 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 a sort of more performance art, sort of a different kind of performativity there on 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 Tierra on the Adobe platform. Yeah, but it was whereas I feel like um, in the first Adobe construction was holding was a space that could hold image making, you know, through painting and then you know. Uh, and where, as in lace, you know, it was a sort of brown sort of container that could hold bodies moving. I was thinking about this 
this third space as something that could hold objects. And I wanted to, and I wanted those objects to be considered by folks that, that are not always the first sort of go-to people when we think about how to designate art and what gets designated as art. So what I did was I, I, I had these sort of series of site-specific objects that were also installations where the sites that were being sort of considered were the physical spaces where these objects would be buried, the potential adobe platform that they could exist in in the future, but also the people that I was inviting to come and unearth all of these different objects. So very, very specific, but also a very sort of simultaneous and multiple site that I was considering in, in the making of, of all of these different uh, things that I ended up bearing, ranging from very incredibly sort of like personal objects to some with, with a little bit more distance, but all sort of thinking about taking home and place as a sort of maybe a theme, perhaps, that sort of uh, weaves you know, within uh, all, of, all of these different objects that were, that were made and buried. And so the people that I invited were, you know, uh, the two curators, um, both Hamza and Aram, uh, Hamza Walker and Aram Mashaedi. Curators of Made in LA. Curators of Made in LA. A couple of artists, peer friends of mine, and some family members. So they were, had a range of people that have a relationship to art making that were invited to unearth the objects and then consider them and sort of think about where, where they belong. And so one of the options that I, that I made available to them was for them to be on this Adobe platform that at that time was only the sort of idea of an Adobe surface that they could exist on because the platform didn't yet exist. Because I wanted them to sort of think about like how, how they relate to museums and how they, how they think about art and what is art to them and, you know, and is are museums the sort of defaulting places where, you know, we assume art to exist in. And so all, all but one person decided to lend their work over to, to this Adobe platform. Uh, that would exist at the Hammer Museum for Made in LA. One person decided to rebury their object um, and leave it in Illusion Park. I want to pivot to kind of a broader art question, and that is perhaps an obvious one. Were, were you, are you interested in Carl Andre? And I don't mean so much his minimalism or his use of bricks, such as in the famous equivalent eight at the, at the Tate. I mean, I mean more his engagement with the community history of Quincy, Massachusetts, where he, he grew up and his use of its granite quarry, its famous granite quarry and so much of his work. No, no, I, I've, I, the first time that it was that, that his name was mentioned in relationship to what I was doing, I found, I didn't know how to respond to it. I felt a little bit taken aback because there's so much, there's so much personal history and there's so much of, of making these bricks that sort of, I think, is grappling with and making visible, like this sort of this way of laboring collectively that, you know, I can't see myself like making this work anywhere else outside of, you know, you know, the Southwest of the U.S. And so I'm, you know, I'm thinking about 
other histories. I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about like art history. I'm, I'm pointing towards something else. And that's something else I don't even, you know, I, I don't even know if it's art necessarily. But it's, it's, it's something that I feel is, is here, that is in, in this, this land. And, you know, I, I've, and so I think, you know, what comes with being, being, bringing this work into museums and galleries and traditional art spaces, those are the histories, you know, Carl Andre, those are the histories that I have to sort of also contend for, right? Although I think he would say that, and I think he did, maybe his famous 1973-ish interview with Phyllis Tuckman, that he was doing what you just described, which was he was engaging with place, the place he grew up in its industry, that granite quarry in, 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 you know, he was a Yankee and, and, and you're not, uh, nor, nor am I obviously. But I think he, 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 he found that specific engagement with, with, with place and local industry and local materials important too. I think this, this way of making is, is similar in that way, but I think the context of, industrialism is important to consider and and who is making adobe bricks and who are who's making these sort of industrial you know materials that are used to like you know build the surroundings we're all familiar with right adobe making i guess you know i'm think i think about like why why the people that live in Chicago, florida's my one are making their homes out of adobe it's because it's what's immediately accessible to them you know and it's cheap it's free you know they're making their homes out of like literally like their environment like their natural environment and i think that's a big i think distinction to sort of consider last last question you know so we've been talking about adobe a lot and so over the last i don't know four or five years they've become very much a trademark material object etc for you so much so that they've almost become a recognizable trademark i mean you know we have you know when we think of artists and kind of sort of trademarked materials we think of like richard Serra and corten steel or mark de Suvero and i-beams and rafa sparza and adobe bricks are you good with that immediate legibility or did it happen so quickly that you know your career happened so quickly that you haven't finished working through whether or not you're okay having a trademark material yeah i mean this is all i mean this is new and it's happening quickly and i am still very interested and invested in working with with other way but i'm also you know incredibly interested and excited about performance it i feel which, like which i should jump in and it doesn't always involve adobe so for example you've used concrete in performance exactly exactly and so i feel you know, I feel like I, I've, I have a, I've had a, a great amount of, of support in, in the work that I've, that I've done outside of like traditional art spaces where you don't get, you know, as much sort of visibility perhaps that have allowed me to sort of like gauge or position myself in relationship to, to, you know, these institutions. And so I feel I feel still sort of privileged to be able to continue to like experiment and do what like I, I feel really passionate about and, and not necessarily like tied to this medium that I think is you know automatically I guess comes up 
when when people I guess think of think about my work. And so I you know, so much about Adobe is thinking about like the possibilities, the possibilities of mud, the possibilities of this brick. And you know, I see I see the possibilities of of performance as well and the possibilities of of making work, unsanctioned work out in, in public space. You know, I see the potentials of of the body moving out in space and and I plan to like continue to sort of engage engage those ideas and those interests and questions that I have in various ways. Rafa Sparza, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents an exhibition by Joel Shapiro, one of the most prominent and influential sculptors of the era. The colorful, immersive installation, conceived specifically for the space of the Renzo Piano Design Galleries of the Nasher, pushes the artist's decades-long investigation of geometric form into new terrain. The exhibition features brightly painted, suspended forms that hover in space at different heights and angles, along with a series of recent drawings and key works by Shapiro from the Nasher's permanent collection. See Joel Shapiro through August 21st at the Nasher Sculpture Center. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Tonight, the Democratic National Convention concludes two weeks of American political stagecraft. That makes now a good time to think about William Popel's great 2008 installation, Trinket, a supersized American flag fraying at the seams as it's propelled by massive fans. We spoke on the occasion of the work's installation at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles. So naturally, I'd like to start by talking about the artwork of the moment, Trinket at MoCA in Los Angeles. You first installed the work at Grand Arts in Kansas City back in 2008. The, the drawings for that piece are dated a little bit earlier. They're dated 0708. So could you take us back to 2007 and detail a little bit of what started you moving toward what became the piece? I've always been thinking about how to create an object that could live outside of my own intention. I realized, okay, these objects do exist. You know, they're, they're usually symbols of someone or peoples. And I realized that eventually that, I think it was on my bike one night and I saw this flag flying above a building, uh, a bank. It was lit, it was at nighttime. And knowing a little bit about flag lore, I realized, well, wow, it's flying at night. It looks as large as a postage stamp, but I know, I know 
that it's really quite large. And plus this flag at night, you could hear it like like flapping really hard. I also realized it wasn't in good condition. And uh, you could see that better at night than you could at daytime. And I thought, this is really fascinating. I wonder what would happen if, 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 if this object was somehow uh, more available to me, i.e. more at my level. What, what would that be about? And I wasn't sure, but that's sort of how it began. Was there a contemporary political thought or point of socio-political engagement that might have sparked your interest in the flag? Or are those readings and ideas that only come into those of us who see it later? I think that kind of thing was in the air. I mean, the issue of who owns democracy or who can operate democracy or who can participate in democracy had been in my mind because I was working on a project at the time called the Black Factory. And this was a truck that had a crew of three and traveled through the country, basically talking about what most people assume would be questions about blackness, but basically were a lot of questions about labor or questions about identity via uh, issues of gender. The Black Factory title was more like a lure. It was more like something to sort of, uh, I knew there's, there's, a, there's an easy dichotomy. Easy dichotomy? In a way, it's kind of... Uh, straightforward in a way that our country is definitely uh, rived or riven by um, this split in terms of color. So I thought that would be an interesting attractant, but that's what people would expect from a black artist. But what if the, what if when the truck stopped and we started conversing, because that's basically what the crew did, we stop in, in these cities and we start talking about how people occupy this space of being as Americans. So I was already in this place of thinking about, you know, what this thing, what this nationalistic thing is. I, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, because I think there's a suggestion of it in one of the drawings, one of the preliminary sketches for Trinket. You, you wrote on a drawing dated December 10th, 2007, important factors for choosing proper flag material. One, sound of flapping. Does that go back to your being on your bike and seeing it outside the bank then? I mean, part of it goes to my, you know, background maybe as a musician, but also my performance background, basically. Uh, I know that as much as people might, might like to believe that we are, uh, or they are, or one is the being of the mind. <laughs> one is just as much the being of the body. And uh, I know that this, the spectacle of the flag, right, is really about how it makes you feel in your gut, you know? You can think whatever you want to think, but the physicality of this thing, of the presence of this 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 marked piece of cloth, that, that has a presence all of its own outside of any ideas you may have about it. So Francis Scott Key had something, he had something going. At God. <laughs> and that was, so, so yeah, if people haven't seen pictures of, of the piece on they're actually already we're, we're taping this i think four or five days after the show opens and there are already videos of it all over youtube so if people have seen those and we'll 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 help people find images on on manpodcast.com they'll, they'll see that the flag as it did in kansas city shreds in, in your notes about the material that you wanted the flag made out of you, that's where you made a note about shredding so it was you know you didn't want some sort of super strength material that would never shred, that you wanted it, you wanted that outcome. Why was that key? I think for a number of reasons. One is because that's what happens when you have 
these large, powerful emblems out in nature. Nature does this thing, you know, and it doesn't really care that this is your symbol. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. You know, it's like some of these flags are quite large. And the ones that are most impressive in terms of their uh, falling apart, ones that are most magnificent in that way, are the ones where the person who put it out there assumed that the flag would sustain itself. And of course, the joke is that nature is much larger than that. And it shows itself over time, however, which is also interesting. Of course, if you only have the flag out there for a month or so, there'll be some deterioration. But over a longer period of time, you'll see a steady loss of, how would you call it, magnificence. But there'll be something else that will replace it. It'll be kind of a sort of poignancy that will replace it that I found really quite striking. That, that it's really the sense of loss that you see or that you, you feel is possible to this symbol that, that, that I don't know, I wouldn't say that, mo I wouldn't say that all Americans hold the flag dear, but it is interesting when you see the loss, you may hold it closer. Sticking with, with 2007 for the moment, Barack Obama announces he's running for president in May of 2007. You're composing or coming up with the piece, at least in those sketches at the end of that year. Was he in any way important to, to the piece? I'd say possibly the idea of a new hope. But with every new hope, there's a possibility of disappointment. I enjoyed the fact that, oh, that, that this figure called Obama, Barack Obama, was becoming a part of the political horizon. At the same time, I wondered, what was it going to suffer? And I, I use the word it because I guess in some way, you know, Barack Obama is much larger than himself. He's become like a flag in a way. He's much more, more than what people think in a certain way, in a certain way, much less. And that's an interesting contradiction as an artist that I particularly enjoy. But at the time, not exactly. I mean, I knew that was on its way, but it was I didn't know where it was going to go in terms of his journey. And there was no way to know. I went back and, and read a bunch of stuff from kind of mid-2007, mid-late 2007. We now take it for granted, I think, that one of the right-wing attacks against Barack Obama is he's un-American. But that hadn't started then, and there was no suggestion that was going to be a favorite right-wing meme. I think he's un-American then. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, look at the man. I'm, I'm only kidding in a certain way. But, but, you know, I mean, the fact that he looks the way he does is, how do you say? I mean, it, 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 if you have any sense of this country, then you know that that's going to draw fire. But on the other hand, this guy looks presidential. So what does that mean? You know, how does these two things go together? He's black, or he looks black, yet he looks presidential, whatever that means. How can these two be two things be conflated together? I thought that was an interesting, how would you say, I don't know, it's not an oxymoron, but it's definitely an image that doesn't quite sit tight. Says an artist who loves his contradictions. The the other thing that was happening back in in 07 and 06 and you know in that in, in the mid aughts was the kind of hyper patriotism, if not outright jingoism, prompted by American military interventions of the world, their kind of often lack of success, and the way those operations were defended with this kind of extraordinarily hyper flag-waving, literally flag-waving patriotism. And when I first became aware of the piece in 2008, that was the first thing I thought of. Was that one of the sources? I think that this country has always been this issue regarding how, it's like a quantitative question in a, in a funny way, right? 
it's like how American are you? Or, you know, it's a, are you American or are you something else? It's a very much a question about quantity, interestingly enough. It's if you could measure something like like uh, commitment to in terms of number. But yes, that was something definitely in the air. I think that, you know, there's also been, how do you say, this this tight, uh, this, yeah, how tightly do you hold the flag? And I was thinking, is this something that you can actually hold? Can you hold democracy close to you? Is it something that, that that's even possible? I mean, because it is an idea, is it not? Or a set of ideas. And yet we talk about it as if it's some kind of living creature. This is fascinating. What's what's really going on here? You can put it on your lapel pin. You can you can put it in your front yard. You can. Is that is so? Is that part of why the size of the flag is important? I mean, I noticed even in those early drawings, you're specifying that you want the top of the flag to be as close to the ceiling as four feet. Yeah, I think I wanted to fill the 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 space that it was in, and I realized later technically that that was important. But what would happen is that the the movement of the air around the flag that the flag would cause was even more important. And I think that that suggested to me this, uh, this I'm using the wrong, wrong word here because it has to do with light, but penumbra. There's this penumbra effect of the flag does not have to touch you. It doesn't have to even be near you to affect you. And it really is, it reminded me how ideology works. You know, it works invisibly. It works outside itself. And that's why it's such a potent instrument. And I said, yes, yes, that's how these things really operate. But, but to take an op object like that, a thing like that, reminds me more of sort of a tribal attitude towards objects, where you imbue this thing with a kind of magic. That, it, that really sort of, that connected to my interest in African religion or, or, or mystical practices. So the, the, the piece goes up in Kansas City in 2008 in the middle of a presidential campaign. Was that accidental, intentional, coincidental? No, it wasn't. I think, you know, it was I was something I've been working on, as you know, for a number of years. But at the same time, it spurred me on when I was asked by Grand Arts, what do you want to do? You know, in KC, this is what I want to do. I've been wanting to do it and I've been wanting to have time to figure it out because it took a number of years to technically figure out how to do this. Oh, I bet. I bet. I mean, when people see the videos or see the piece in Los Angeles. Yeah, there's. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's not Hollywood cinematic, but you know, one, one gets to see the, the myth making of the thing while it's making the thing. Yeah. So I think, you know, of course, I, you couldn't ignore the fact of what was happening, and I was definitely taken with the possibility of being able to meet a set of events on the ground, as it were, while I was making this thing. I didn't have any idea how they would sort of suture together, but that wasn't really. I couldn't worry about that. So is it coincidence that Mocha is showing it at the beginning of another presidential campaign? I mean, did you have anything to do with that, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, we kind of timed it out. I mean, we, we definitely knew that we didn't want to, we wanted, it couldn't be too late because there was, there, was, there was issues of schedule. It has made my life much more difficult to do it at the time I did it. There's lots of discussions because we we're supposed to actually do it much six months later, but and maybe even later than that. But I decided, no, I, I want to do this. I want to make it happen. And I want to push it now. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.